Most recent research indicates that over the last two decades, families have spent 33% less time sharing a meal together. So if you formerly spent three days in the week eating dinner together, you would now only spend two. And this is significant because what the research indicates is that meals are beneficial for us in our relationships. So obviously, if you eat meals with people, you get to know them more. They're beneficial for students academically, students who eat family, eat meals, eat families, eat meals with their families more frequently, succeed more frequently in school. They're beneficial for us emotionally, psychologically, and even what we will find out is spiritually. The challenge is finding time for meals often feels like a war zone. And I know this because Sarah and I are in probably the easiest season of life to do it, and it's still a struggle. We are dinks. We are dual income, no kids. We have the ability to go to work and then come back, and still we struggle to find time to eat a meal together. We do not struggle with the, the reality of today's families who have schedules for their children all across the city, and they have to drive them to places and have competing different exciting things, but overlapping schedules. Nor are we singles who don't necessarily have someone in their home to share a meal with. It's a war zone. But the challenge is, and we see this both on a research level and also on a scripture level, uh, if you are unable to spend time eating a meal together, your soul will actually be deformed. It's a war zone. But I know this because it's been my recent experience. This has come for me out of uh, Exodus chapter 11 and 12. We've been in a study on the book of Exodus, and just last week we went through the plagues. And the final plague is a really challenging one, and it was wrestling with it that these, this war zone imagery came to the forefront. So I want to go there with you. Exodus chapter 11, starting at verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt will die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel." And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow me, follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. It's a challenging text. The death of the firstborn across Egypt. Israel ended up being liberated as a result of it. I want to offer three important things to just try and help us understand as we wrestle through this text. And I do not expect these to be all-encompassing. In fact, I know they're not. So as we go through them, if you feel like you still have questions, actually reach out, and I would love to process further with you. But three of the most important things for us to remember in this challenging text uh, are, are this. Number one, there's been a progression to this point. Moses initially went to Pharaoh and showed him a miracle to reveal the work of God. Uh, 
God had shown Moses the ability to put his hand in his cloak and then it comes out and it becomes leprous as snow. Uh, Moses went before Pharaoh and tossed his staff down and it turned into a snake. He turned uh, blood or he turned water into blood. All these things, Pharaoh was able to see the miracles of God and it didn't change his heart. And then there's progressively greater levels of judgment on Egypt. The Nile, the river, is turned into blood. There's frogs that come everywhere. There's gnats. There's flies. There's hail. There's locusts. There's darkness. And there's just this progression until eventually you get to the point where the judgment becomes so severe that it results in the death of the firstborn. This is not abrupt. It's not out of nowhere. There's been a progression of saying, listen, and Pharaoh refuses to listen. That's the first thing we need to remember. Second thing, I think it's a marker of the success of Jesus' ministry that we, we are so challenged by this text. Jesus himself emphasized some things that seem contrary to this. He, em he emphasized enemy love, the way that you should love those who are against you, the way that you should sacrifice for them. And he also emphasized suffering love, that you would suffer on behalf of others. And to put those together in the cross, where he suffers on behalf of those who are presently his enemies, that is the picture of God fully revealed in Jesus. We also aren't yet at the story of Jesus. We're in Exodus chapter 11. See, the challenge, I think, is that we want the ethics of Jesus before the time of Jesus. God didn't snap his fingers. He didn't, he didn't all of a sudden send Jesus. This is a time where God had just sent Abraham, a single individual whose family's going to grow and then be sent into Egypt. And then this, this, uh, these people in Egypt are gonna become slaves and then they're gonna become a nation as they escape Egypt. All these things, there's this progression. But we want the ethics of Jesus before the time of Jesus has actually arrived. It's the second thing we need to remember. And then the third thing is really what is gonna be foundational for us as we dig in today. I think this is a war text. Maybe that seems strange, but let me show you what I mean. Pharaoh himself, the king of Egypt, confronted. The armies of Pharaoh going out after this story in a couple chapters to chase down the people of Israel who are described as the hosts of God. The chariots mobilized and ultimately defeated and crushed. The people of Egypt plundered that they will actually give over their gold and their silver, specifically their gold, I believe, to Israel. In Exodus 13, 18, it says that the people of Israel were armed for battle. And in declaring a song about this Exodus moment, in Exodus 15, 3, it opens with the words, Yahweh is a mighty warrior. It's a war text. Why does this matter? Well, if it's a war text, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, God defeats the armies of Egypt, but what is Israel, the armies of God, supposedly, what are they doing? First, they're running away. <laughs> the, the chariots and the armies of Pharaoh are defeated while Israel escapes over a Red Sea. They don't go to war in the typical type of way. But what we see is in Exodus chapter 12, a specific example that Israel is invited into in the midst of this war text. It's essentially their contribution. They go to war in this way. And here's what we learn. How do the people of God go to war? They share a meal. Read with me in Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. 
it shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. As God, as Yahweh delivers the people of Israel, and as he invites them into this warfare against Egypt, really their contribution is to share a meal together. In fact, it's a repeated meal. They're going to continue to have this meal. You see in verse 14, this shall be a day for you. This shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. They're going to continue to have this meal. In fact, they're going to reorient their entire life around this meal. The beginning that we read in chapter 12, verse 2. This month shall be for you the beginning of months. They're going to mark time itself by the exodus moment. They are not going to mark it by the agricultural cycle. They're not going to mark it by the fiscal year or by their quarterly earnings or by educational calendar or by birthdays or anniversaries. They are marking time itself, the central beginning point, as the point when God delivered them out of Egypt. And they're going to do this again and again and again. How is that warfare, though? That doesn't necessarily feel like going to war. The idea is hidden in the concept of a liturgy. Here's what I mean by liturgy. I mean a repeated rhythm that forms you. When you wake up in the morning, and the first thing that you do is check your phone. That's a liturgy. It's a repeated rhythm that forms you. It teaches you to not have any stillness in your life, but from the moment that you wake up to the moment that you sleep, you will be checking what's been happening in the world. When we look at whatever our favorite entertainment option is, whether it's YouTube, whether it's Netflix, whether it's TikTok, whether it's TV and shows, whatever your option is, whether it's movies, when that's our consistent pattern, that's what we go to in downtime, what is that? It's actually a liturgy. It's a repeated rhythm that forms you. It teaches us that unless something is entertaining, it's not good. It's a liturgy. There's also such a thing as good liturgies, good rhythms that form us. In my second year of college, I decided that I was, we, me and my parents decided that we were just going to do a Zoom call. Pre-COVID, we got on Zoom real early. We, we did a Zoom call just once a week. And it was kind of awkward at first, but as we've continued this rhythm, even to this day, it's just been a repeated rhythm that's formed us. It is so much easier to talk to my parents, so much easier to have these conversations. When we gather as a church community and we do such things as worship and teaching and community, these are repeated rhythms that form us. What's happening here is what we could almost call liturgical warfare. It's a resistance. It's saying we are going to be formed in a particular way. Israel is going to have ingrained into their DNA a very particular way of life. And here's the picture that we're going to have is these circles that are on the screen. At the center of it is this Passover meal that they're going to share, and it's going to be the celebration moment that they will walk through. But it's also interesting that God has chosen the Passover celebration to be oriented around a meal. And so we're going to learn how the Passover is a paradigm of meals. 
And then further, we're just going to learn the general principles that are happening throughout this story. So those are the three circles. We're thinking through Passover, we're thinking through the paradigm that that is for all of our meals and all of our tables, and we're just thinking about the general principles that we learn through the Passover story. This is warfare. If you want a practical example of how it becomes warfare, turn to the person of Jesus. Meals and tables were for Jesus warfare. They were resistance. At least his enemies sure seem to think so. The Pharisees and the scribes were frustrated with Jesus and cried out against him, oftentimes because of who he ate with, of the tables that he gathered around, of the community that we kept, that he kept. Perhaps it's not surprising to us then that this is how the Passover celebration starts, is by God emphasizing the importance of doing this in community. Read with me, chapter 12, verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for each household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month where the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And this blood is going to be the marker whereby God in the death of the firstborn passes over, thus the name, passes over the people of Israel and rescues them. This is the central festival throughout Israel's history it continues to be the central festival, even to this day, the Passover. And the beginning words are about doing it in community, about a household coming together. And if a household is too small, doing it alongside your neighbors. And I don't think we should imagine this as some sort of like idyllic, I don't know, perfect environment. Ah, the families are going to come together. You know what mealtime can be like for families. You know that it can be a time of tension. You know that it can be a struggle to pull out actual conversations from people. You know that it can be a challenge. Uh, this probably wouldn't have been a challenge for them, but a challenge today to not have phones at the table. Not an Israelite issue. But you know the challenges of it. And yet, God is saying, when I mark this, this Exodus event in your history, Israel, we are going to do it by sharing a meal. This is going to be the centerpiece. This is going to be the paradigm of your rescue. So here's the first way. The first way that the people of God go to war. Eat together. Seriously. It can be that simple, but it can also be incredibly challenging. This happens partially just because of our cultural realities, the modern Western uh, understanding of individualism. And I know that word's kind of a cliche at this point. It gets tossed around. So maybe another way to talk about it is the difference between a warm culture and a cool culture. If you go to Latin America, it's a warm culture. It's closer to the equator. And what happens typically is in these types of environments, people are just much more homely. They invite you in, you share meals together. It's just much more common. In a cold environment like Canada, 
man, do we love our privacy. Introversion is something that's way more common. We are not a people who like to open our doors and share tables with one another. I know this. I am an introvert. I'm the one who, when I was in middle school, I was like gaming away on my computer and had somebody come up and ask one of my friends. They knocked on, knocked on the door and my parents answered it and they said, oh, like, hey, Nathan, like, do you, wanna, do you wanna come play hockey with us? And they had a stick ready for me to go. And I remember walking up the stairs and seeing and being like, nope. And I turned around, went back and just started gaming away again. That's me. To this day, like, I just wanna, on my rest time, I just wanna, I just wanna read a book. I just wanna have a very quiet environment. And yet the invitation is still to eat together. I'm reminded of the quote by Rosaria Butterfield, who in this, uh, in, in her life, who has an incredible story of coming to faith, someone who is deeply cynical of Christians and the church and Jesus, and yet now is an absolute rock star. You need to read her book, The Gospel Comes with the House Key. Uh, but she has this to say, as someone who is living with a level of hospitality and community invitation that is mind-boggling, who will cut vegetables. She says she cuts vegetables and makes soup all day so that she can invite whoever walks in her door for a meal. She says this, I often find people exhausting. Amen to that. <laughs> but over the years, I've learned how to pace myself, how to prepare for the private time necessary to recharge, and how to grow in discomfort. Knowing your personality and your sensitivities does not excuse you from ministry. It means that you need to prepare for it differently than others might. I feel that. I feel the need to rest. But I also know that I need to rest in a particular way so that this is possible. And this is actually where the Passover pushes us. It pushes us to the importance of a meal that is based around rest. Read with me in chapter 12, verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statue forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. As you read this and you hear the marker of the seven days, you should be hearing an echo of Genesis chapter 1, when God created the heavens and the earth in seven days. You should also recognize specifically that there is a day set aside as a holy assembly. In fact, two days, the first and the seventh day. Again, an echo of when God on the seventh day rested and set that day aside as holy. Here's a fascinating fact for you. The very first thing that God made holy was time itself. It was the seventh day. Time itself was made holy. This will come in the coming chapters. It will become the Sabbath rhythm of Israel. The seventh day, the Shabbat, what would be for us Saturday, the day of rest. I think our perception of this, of a 24-hour period blocked off to do no work, it feels kind of oppressive. 
it feels unfair, it feels ridiculous. Think of it from the perspective of a group of people who have just been in captivity and oppression and slavery for years, for generations. And they're now being told, mark this day off. It will be a holy assembly. You shall rest. The people of Israel defy the powers of slavery by setting aside time to rest. They resist the oppression that is marked by constant labor and work in rest. And I don't know if you noticed this, but in verse 17, it says this, no work shall be done on those days. No work at all, just rest. But there's one thing you can do. What everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. Here's the second thing I think we need to remember. Here's the second way that you actually go to war against the powers of darkness. Slow down enough to enjoy a meal. First one, eat together. Second time, second one, slow down enough to actually enjoy it. I think sometimes the way that I eat meals is actually a marker of the way in which I have been resting. Have I been skipping breakfast because I need to run out the door? Yeah. Do I just have a granola bar and a couple snacks, maybe an apple for lunch? Sometimes. Do I skip dinner so that I can connect with people or do things that need to get done? Yeah, it's happened. In fact, it's been a season lately. See, the first thing is about community. The second thing is about rest. And I find that so often both those things go together. This has actually been a marker of what's happened in my life is that as I rest more and as I'm more intentional about slowing down, I'm actually way stronger at being a person who's able to step out into opportunities to have community with one another, to eat meals with our neighbors or to have friends over, to do those types of things. We need to slow down enough to actually enjoy a meal. But I want to acknowledge, first of all here, the struggles along the way. How is it possible to slow down, for example, when you are balancing all the different, all the different schedules and rhythms of your children? That is a serious challenge. And I don't have any simple answer, but I want to acknowledge this. It probably feels like you need to go to war to accomplish it. Probably feels like you need to have some sort of like strong structure that you're going to commit to to accomplish it probably feels like you are in some sort of like liturgical warfare. You need a repeated rhythm that forms you. But what do you do on the other side? What if you're living on your own? What if you would love to share meals with people? You just have nobody to share it with. I think this is actually probably more common than just for people who find themselves to live on their own. I think the power of a meal is as challenging as it can be, and we all know this, as challenging as it can be, we have a deep longing to have a good meal with someone else. I think it's built into the fiber of our being to just wish that we could enjoy meals alongside people that we love, good food alongside people that we love. Personally, when I think of vacations throughout my life, I most often mark them by the meals that I ate. I know that's not everyone, but I definitely enjoy having good meals with people that I love. God is designing 
Israel's central, central celebration, central festival around a shared meal. Why is it so significant? Well, it comes to the third thing that I think you see in this meal. See, there is the community piece and there's the rest piece, but there's also specifically the discipleship emphasis. Read with me chapter 12, verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads in worship. So you see here the specific liturgy, the acting out that Israel went through in order to do, in order to cover the doorposts with blood. You see the story of the Lord passing over the people, the houses of Egypt. Then you also see what's going to happen in the meal. You see this as something that's going to be replayed in Israel's history again and again. You see that a, ch a child will say to their parents, what do you mean by this service? There's an emphasis in this meal about rehearsing the story of God. And that is, in fact, our third way that a meal could actually become warfare. If the first one is simply to eat together, if the second one is to slow down enough to enjoy a meal, the third one is to rehearse the story of God over a meal. At this point in the story of God in scripture, there are no priests. The order of the Old Testament is Genesis, Exodus, and then Leviticus, Leviticus being a book for priests. The priesthood did not exist yet. But here we have parents playing the role as priests. Here we have parents taking primary responsibility for their, for their children to actually understand, here is what's happening in the story of God. Here is who God is. Here's what he's done. Here's what he is doing. Places parents in that position of primary responsibility. And it also emphasizes that a meal is the place where they're going to be able to accomplish this. Again, I don't find this to be easy. In fact, I was going through this and I was thinking, first of all, I got to the community piece and thought, man, I've not been very strong on this lately. I've not been creating the space for my neighbors recently. I've been strong over the summer, but lately I've just been let way less intentional. And then I got to the next one on rest. I'm like, man, this is part of the reason. Maybe it is the reason why I haven't been connecting with neighbors is I just have not been, I've not been actually creating spaces to just slow down. I've not been living out of the pace where I just like in a meal enjoy life with someone. I've not been doing this rest piece. 
And then I came to this one on the discipleship piece, that a meal would actually be a place where I rehearsed the story of God. And I thought once again, I don't really know how to do this. I stand here as someone who has been struck by the story of Passover, about how God uplifts a meal as the place of encounter with one another, of a place of rest for your soul, and of a place of rehearsing the story of God. And I thought, I don't know if I do any of this. But I'm hopeful that it doesn't have to be some sort of cheesy thing because I'm a cheese grater and I will not stand any sort of like forced entry into this. But I do have a picture in my head of some way that it looks fairly natural. I remember being like 11 or 12 years old and coming to my dad uh, at a mealtime actually. My mom said, why don't you ask your dad this question at a meal? And I asked him this. I'd been reading something in the book of Exodus actually and I didn't understand it. And I said, hey dad, there's a story where it says that Moses was talking to God face to face, but I also have heard elsewhere in the Bible that nobody can see God face to face. And I just don't understand how those things work together. I don't remember what my dad said. I don't think he had a, a full answer. But obviously the ability to have that conversation over a meal was significant enough to me because I remember it 15 or 16 years later. I also remember my older brother's friend who was there, Aaron, and he had not grown up in a family of faith. And he was just sitting there. He, he, was a, he was a relatively new Christian and he was just sitting there and he actually commented on the fact that it was incredibly cool to be part of a family environment where that conversation just flowed naturally because he had never grown up in that. To have these types of conversations just flow naturally. I think that's the goal. Can we actually be a people who these conversations just flow naturally? Maybe it just means in a very casual type of environment over a meal, Asking a question like, hey, like, where's a place you've seen God at work in your life in the last week, last month? It means marking like our level of maturity is often indicated by our ability to have spiritual conversations. Maybe a more practical level. Sarah and I, uh, we've been trying to have some sort of rhythm of rest for 24 hours, a repeated rhythm that forms us. Not because it's required, it actually isn't. In the New Testament, the Sabbath is not a law that you have to follow. We just simply desire it. No requirement, we just simply desire to have that type of rest. And what we've been doing is at our mealtimes, we just pull out a psalm and read it. We want to rehearse the story of God at a meal. One of the things that I'm so struck by is the way in which Jesus himself rehearsed this story. And this is where we'll land the plane. Jesus in the New Testament is recorded as having this Passover meal with his disciples, with his followers. And he ha they have out the different elements, what would be the particular type of unleavened bread and the wine that is part of it. And they would have this bitter herb that they're supposed to say, the reason you have this bitter herb is to remember your suffering in Egypt. And Jesus makes this audacious claim a story that has been retold for centuries, for generations. He's sitting with his disciples for this Passover meal 1,400 years after this moment in Egypt. For, for Again, for centuries, Israel, Israelites have told this story and said the reason we do this is because we ourselves are reliving the Exodus moment. So sitting there, reclining at a table, in a meal, with his, with his disciples, I'm sure his disciples are expecting to walk through the story together. Perhaps they'd even done it in previous years. Jesus makes an audacious claim, though, at this final one, and it changes the trajectory of the world. He holds up the bread, and rather than talking about the unleavened bread that they had to make in haste and escape from Egypt, 
He says this, this bread is my body broken for you. Then he takes the cup and he says, this cup is my blood shed for you. It is a new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. What had for centuries been about this moment in Exodus, this moment in Egypt, Jesus is now saying that central story that you retold every single year is now about me. And now we retell that story, in fact, every week or uh, as a Mennonite Brethren Church, every month in person in the Lord's Supper. So let me read Exodus chapter 12, verse 7 to 13, and see if you can find the parallels. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Once again, the culmination of judgment concludes in the death of the firstborn. And the blood of the Passover lamb becomes a sign for humanity and a marker of God's deliverance. God's people are led out of slavery into worship. They are welcomed, they are invited to a table to do so in community. They are ushered out into a place of rest, not oppressive labor. And they are told now, rehearse this story again and again. This is the new Exodus. Thanks for joining us.